We are in week two of a short two-week series where we're taking a look at our mission statement here at the church. And that mission statement is winning the lost. We talked about that last week. We saw God's heart for lost people. And then this week, uh, maturing the believer, maturing the believer. And so I want to talk a little bit this morning about what maturity is. Maturity is both a process as well as a destination. Maturity is both of those things. Uh, it's a destination in the sense that you, at some point you become mature. Um, and, but there's a process in getting to that point. And John Wesley, uh, in his theological uh, teaching, uh, talked about this process. And he gave some different uh, terminology that I won't use here today just because it might start to sound a little foreign. Uh, but in any case, he saw this very clearly that maturity, in order to get to that place where God is taking us, that there's a process that we have to follow in order to get there. And that's one of the reasons why Methodism back in the 1600s and the 1700s exploded uh, was because of this recognition uh, that maturity is, is part of what God's driving us to. Because for many of us, uh, we come to faith in Christ, uh, we, and, then, and then our churches say to us, well, or we say to our church, well, I, I've made this decision for Christ, well, what do I do next? And our churches say, well, you know, give to the church, become a part of a Sunday school class, dress this way, talk this way, and then the rest of your life is just supposed to be lived out as a good church person, if you would. But the Bible says that there's much, much more on the other side of making a decision for Christ, and what that is, is this maturity. And so we want to define it clearly today, we want to define the destination that we're aiming for, and then talk a little bit about the process. To help us get there, we're going to be following Paul's letter in, uh, to the Galatians, uh, Galatians uh, chapters 1 and 2. And right now we're going to read Galatians chapter 5. So if you would stand with me for the reading from Scripture. Galatians chapter 5, we'll begin verses, verse 22. And this is the end game. This is what maturity looks like, okay? This is the destination, okay? Here we go. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Verse 24. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. You may be seated. All right. Um, so let's kind of walk backward to the beginning of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, Galatia is a territory in modern-day Asia Minor, central Turkey, and so Paul is writing a letter to the churches in this territory. And he begins, and we'll walk forward to, that, to, to chapter 5. But let's begin the letter, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul says, Paul, an apostle. Right out of the get-go, Paul shares his title here, that he's an apostle. An apostle in the first century meant someone who has seen the risen Christ and then has been called by the risen Christ to follow him, to be a disciple, to be a leader, if you would, of sharing the gospel. And so Paul says, I am one of those. I have seen the risen Christ. Now, when did Paul see the risen Christ? He saw him when Paul was on the road to Damascus. He saw that blinding light from heaven. It was Jesus. And so it knocked him down on the ground. And Paul says, who are you, Lord? The word Lord referring to, I recognize that this is God. And so Jesus speaks to him and he says, 
I'm the one whom you are persecuting. And that was the moment of Paul's conversion, if you would, when Paul put his faith and trust in Jesus. He saw the risen Christ, and Jesus calls Paul into ministry. And so Paul says here, right at the outset, he says, Paul, I'm an apostle. Now, this is unique in all of Paul's letters. In none of the other letters that Paul writes does he say at the outset that I'm an apostle. And then he goes on to say, I've not been sent by men or from Man, That is, I'm not on some kind of a human agenda. I'm not here because somebody told me to come over here and preach to you guys and I'd earn some money and then I'd be able to uh, earn my, work my way up into the, into the preacher network or something like that. He says, no, 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 I'm here because, he says, by Jesus Christ, I've been sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's saying the reason, the purpose why I came to you, to the territory of Galatia to share Christ with you, is not because I was on some sort of a human agenda, it's because... Jesus Christ himself sent me to you. And so what we recognize here at the very front end of the letter is that Paul has told these people that he's an apostle, which is a unique title uh, amongst first century people. It's, he also told them that he's not been sent from man, that he's not on some human agenda. He's not trying to, trying to work the people out of their money or, or elevate himself in some special way but that he's been sent by Christ himself. So all of this lends us to think that the apostle Paul, his credibility has been attacked. Because he's having to say, that I'm, remember folks, I'm an apostle. Remember folks, I didn't come to you because I was trying to carve out a life for myself. I came to you because Jesus sent me. So right out of the get-go, we get this idea, this sense that Paul's credibility is under attack and he's having to reestablish his credibility. We'll see more of that moving forward. Skip down to verse 6 with me. And again, this is a very unique thing that happens in the beginning of one of Paul's letters. He says, I am astonished. Very, I don't, there's, I don't know of any other letters where Paul begins by saying something like this to the people that he's speaking to. Usually it's grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever I think about you, I pray for you, it warms my heart. Instead, with these folks, he says, I'm astonished. And then he goes to say why. I'm astonished because that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So right out of the get-go on this letter... Paul says to the Galatians, he says, look, y'all have turned to a different gospel. What's happened is, pardon my, for instance here, some, Paul's gone out, he's preached to these churches in Galatia, he's established these churches in Galatia, they've responded to the gospel, they've put their faith and trust, they're continuing to meet uh, regularly, weekly, but some Mormons have walked into the church, some Jehovah's Witnesses have walked into the church, I know they didn't have them back then, but in any case, some people who are not of Christ, some people who are not of the body of Christ, they've come into the church and they've begun to share a different gospel, something different than what the Apostle Paul had been teaching them. And these people have jumped on board with that. And so this is what Paul's saying. I'm astonished. I can't believe that you would take the teaching that these people who have walked into your church have shared and that you've jumped on board with what they saw. Did, don't you remember that that's totally different than what I had taught you already? He goes on to say, verse 7, which is really what they've been teaching you, which is really no gospel at all. He says, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Um, so some people have come into the churches in Galatia and they began to teach something that's different than what the Apostle Paul had been teaching. And it's not just slightly different, but it is a different gospel. It is a different way to get to heaven. It's a different way to have your sins forgiven. And so Paul says of them, I don't think I gave Brian this verse, but anyhow, he goes on to say, hey, look, if somebody comes into your church and they teach you something different than this in verse 7 or verse 8, he says, uh, he says that person should be eternally condemned. Even if it's an angel from heaven, even if it's me myself who returns and begins to teach this different gospel, he says that person should be eternally condemned. That's what he thinks of it. Verse 10, 
Again, back to his credibility issue. Am I now trying to win the approval of men, or am I trying to win the approval of God? Am I here trying to prop myself up? Am I here trying to make myself look good? He says, or am I trying to please men? If I was still trying to please men, he said, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, I wouldn't be getting shipwrecked. I wouldn't get my back getting beaten. I wouldn't be getting flogged. I wouldn't get thrown out of into prison, thrown out of town, all these terrible things. He said, if I wanted a cushy life, I wouldn't be serving Jesus. Right? He says, I'm not here for my own benefit. I'm here for the benefit of Christ. Again, back to his credibility issue that he's been having. And so to help shore up his credibility, look at chapter 1 and verse 13. He begins to share his spiritual autobiography. That is, he walks them through his, uh, how he, his journey with Christ, how he came to Christ, uh, what happened in the, in the years after his journey with Christ. And this is all a story that the churches in Galatia have heard before. He, standed up, he stood up with them. He's met in their homes. He's shared with them all of his past story. And so he's just going to briefly hit on some highlights here. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. And they have heard of it. Remember, Paul's been to their churches. He's sat in their homes. He's told them how he used to go out and persecute the churches, he says. Uh, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. And they know that story. They know how he separated husbands from wives. They know how he stood there and hold the coats of those who threw the stones at Stephen, who was the martyr. Um, they know how, he had, how, how Paul had pursued people all across Judea, Christians all across Judea, and had one by one thrown them in jail or had them executed or created orphans out of their children. And the horrible things that Paul had done. He said, you've heard of all that. Verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And this is absolutely accurate. The Apostle Paul was advancing in Judaism beyond many of the Jews his own age. That is to say that the Apostle Paul uh, was like a, um, he, he, was, he was an exceptional student. Uh, he, had a, he had a great acumen for, for theological concepts and for scriptural teaching. And so uh, the Apostle Paul, in fact, was one of Gamaliel's students. Gamaliel was the most important rabbi living in the first century. And a rabbi would only take on three students at a time, and Paul got to be one of those three students. I mean, this would be the equivalent of going to Harvard, going to Yale, and then throwing all kinds of scholarships at you and all this sorts of stuff. I mean, Paul was a, had a very promising future in front of him. And they've heard of all this. Remember, he sat in their homes, he's told them these stories, and they know about what Paul used to be. Um, and so on our timeline, yeah, there it is. On our timeline, you can see uh, Paul's born into the world, and then the B.A. representing that he's born again, and, but he's not born again yet in his spiritual autobiography. So verses four, 13 and 14, Paul's dealing with the period of time leading up to this Damascus Road experience. All right, look at verse 15 with me. Y'all doing okay? Okay, I know I'm just going and going. Verse 15, but when God, who set me apart from birth, and called me by his grace, was pleased, verse 16, to reveal his son in me. Now, when was Christ revealed to Paul? Well, we mentioned it just a few moments ago on the road to Damascus. If you take a look at our map, I think we have a map for you, and this shows uh, Jerusalem. You see the big blob there that says Jerusalem. If you go up north of the Sea of Galilee and a little bit bent toward the deserts of Arabia, you will see a city called Damascus. And so Paul is on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus. It's called the road to Damascus, right? All right, that's where it gets the name. So um, anyhow, so he's on his, on his way to the road to Damascus. 
Christians that he's been persecuting in Jerusalem have said, we can't live here anymore. And so they fled to the utter regions of Judea, the province of Judea, of Israel. And so um, one of the places where they went was the city of Damascus. Damascus was a, a northernmost outpost of the Judean province. And so a lot of the Christians have fled up there. And so Paul is on his way to go seek these Christians out and throw more of them in jail and persecute more of them. And on his way there, he has this blinding light experience. He encounters the risen Christ. Jesus calls him into ministry. Paul gives his life to Christ. And then from there, he goes to, if we're reading from now from the, thinking now from the book of Acts, he tells some of these details. Uh, Paul goes to the house on Straight Street, which is the house that he was intending to go to um, in Damascus, and he stays there for three days, and he goes into the upper room of this house, and he stays up there, and he locks the door behind him. And day after day, people are coming to him, and they're knocking on the door. And they're saying, Paul, you haven't eaten anything for a day. Paul, you haven't taken any water. We know you haven't had any water. And this continues on for three days. Well, what's the Apostle Paul doing in there? The Apostle Paul is grieving. He's grieving over the fact that he had just been out persecuting God and his purposes in the world. He had been out persecuting the people of God. You kind of bring this into our modern context, our local context. Paul loved the Atlanta Braves. He had been an Atlanta Braves fan his whole life. And there was nothing that Paul had wanted more as he was out there on the t-ball field and later in the, in the older leagues and when he was in high school and throwing pitches and traveling ball and all that kind of stuff. He wanted to be more than anything else recruited by the Atlanta Braves. He got recruited. He went through their farm system. He made it to the Atlanta Braves. He became an Atlanta Braves player. He was a great player his rookie year. And then the next coming years, he broke all kinds of statistics and he was just this amazing guy. And then one day, he marched down the field and he looked up and his worst nightmare ever happened, he realized that all this time he had been wearing a jersey for the New York Mets. Okay, I thought that was actually pretty good. <laughs> but he'd been playing for the opposing team. All this time he thought he'd been playing for the home team, but in fact he's playing for the visiting team. And so that's what the Apostle Paul's experience is like. And so he goes to this house on Straight Street in Damascus, and he says to, him, he says to the Lord, he's grieving over all these statistics that he had racked up against the people of God, against God's purposes in the world. And so, um, so he's up there and he's asking the question that you and I would ask in a, in a moment like that when we realize we really messed things up. And he says, God, if you can use me, I'll give you the rest of my days. And so he spends three days and three nights, absolute fast, no food, no water, and finally, Ananias comes to the house on Straight Street. He knocks on the door. Paul comes down, uh, and, and Ananias touches his eyes, and the scales fall from Paul's eyes. And then he says what happens next. Verse 17. He says, After that, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. So back over to our map, if you all can find the map real quick. Um, you can see Damascus, and out east of Damascus is modern-day Iraq. This is where all the deserts are. This is where all the oil fields are. And, um, and so um, he says he went out into Arabia. Arabia is a desert where you go to die. That's where Paul went. And what's Paul doing out there? Well, he's connecting the dots between this Jesus whom he's met and put his faith and trust in and all of the Old Testament stuff. 
he's recognizing that Jesus is a perfect fulfillment of the tabernacle system, where you, the only way to get to where God is in the Holy of Holies in the back of the tabernacle is you've got to come by way of blood, you've got to come by way of water, and there's only one way. If you want to go visit with God, you know, and then only the high priest can do it on the Day of Atonement. So if you want to go see God, the only way to do it is to come by this one way. And so he recognizes and he hears Jesus say, hey, look, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father back there in the Holy of Holies who's now in the heavenly tabernacle but through me, he says. He recognizes that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the Passover lamb, that the Passover lambs that were killed on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, the first month of the Jewish calendar, uh, and those lambs were killed in the ta- at the tabernacle, and the blood was splashed on the altar, that Jesus perfectly fulfills that, that he himself, Jesus, was killed on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. At the very same hour, at the, at the ninth hour, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, as those Passover lambs were being slaughtered, Jesus himself died on the cross. And, and there's a whole lot more of this kind of stuff. And so he's, he's recognizing that Jesus is a perfect fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures. And then he says he then later returned to Damascus. Again, I'm filling in all the details, right? I know you didn't read all that in the text, but nor did the, peop- the people that Paul is writing to. Remember, he's just saying, you've heard of all this. You know all of all this. I've sat with you in your homes. I've shared with you from the pulpit. You know my story. I'm just giving you the highlights of my spiritual autobiography. Verse 18, so after, this, after he returns to Damascus, he says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him there for 15 days. Now, if we can flip back over to Paul's spiritual autobiography, what you're going to see progress is that Paul was born into the world, then he was born again after he persecuted the church, then he's born again on his Damascus Road experience, and then after three years, he says, he goes up to Jerusalem. Now, just one little point of interest here is that Paul says that he went up to Jerusalem. If you remember from our maps, Damascus is north of Jerusalem. And the skeptics of the Bible say, hey, you can't go up if you're heading south, right? Uh, but that's not the way the scriptures write, because if you look at a topographical map of this region, you recognize that Jerusalem is a point of high elevation in this region. And so whether you're traveling east or north or south or wherever you're traveling from, to go to Jerusalem, you're always traveling up. So again, the Bible had it right. All the skeptics of the Bible don't know what they're talking about. But in any case, verse 18, then after three years, he says, they went up to Jerusalem. And the reason why he went was to get acquainted with Peter and stay with him there for 15 days. So he goes to Jerusalem this this first time after three years of spending time in Damascus, learning, growing closer to Christ, growing deeper in his prayer life, beginning to prepare for some public ministry. Verse 19, while he's there, he says, while he's in Jerusalem, only for 15 days, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. So again, remember there's a credibility issue, credibility gap for Paul. People are questioning whether or not Paul's sincere. They're questioning his authenticity. He says, later I went to Syria and Cilicia, verse 22. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea, that is Israel, that are in Christ. They only heard the report, verse 23. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. What a remarkable transformation, right? Jesus does that. Verse 24, and they praise God because of me. All right, so let's skip forward to chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1. And we get the next piece, the next component in Paul's spiritual autobiography. He says, chapter 2 and verse 1, 14 years later. It's an important time frame. Just kind of log that in your mind. Three years, his first trip to Jerusalem after his conversion. And then 14 years later, he says, I came back to Jerusalem again. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. Verse 2, I went in response to a revelation. 
Now, Paul doesn't tell us at this point what that revelation was. Let's look at our, our, our ongoing Paul's spiritual autobiography here. Remember, he was born in the world. He's born again on the Damascus Road. Three years later, he goes to Jerusalem just as a meet and greet with Peter and James. I forgot to mention the fact that this is where Barnabas throws his arm around Paul in the book of Acts and vouches for Paul, says, I know, guys, that he was out trying to kill us all before. Peter, you can come out from hiding behind the curtain. <laughs> and, uh, and so he brings him out. And so, um, they be, and, and so then he comes back to Jerusalem uh, this 14 years later after his first visit. Um, and he says the reason why he came was in response to a revelation. Now, again, he doesn't say what the revelation is. He'll tell us here in a little bit. Um, but on our, you kind of get the sense of the timeline of things moving forward. Okay, all right. Let me get All right. Make sure. All right. Um, some of y'all are starting to think about the helicopter already. We'll fly it overhead. All right, verse 9. It says, uh, James, just skipping forward here. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace that was given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. Now, some people have theorized because of this verse that Paul had originated this whole thing with taking Jesus out to Gentile, that is to non-Jewish people. That's not the case at all. All over the place in the Old Testament, God's trying to win Gentiles into the faith. For example, um, a guy named Jonah, he went to Nineveh, to the, to the Assyrians, the Gentiles, and shared with them about needing to repent of their sins and turn toward God. Um, so that's an Old Testament concept, taking Jesus to the Gentiles. And so Paul's just doing that himself. Uh, verse 9, now verse 10, he says, All that they asked, that is James, Peter, and John, the pillars, when he came to Jerusalem the second time for, to tell him his revelation, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the robs of the world, the very thing that I was eager to do. Verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, he says, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Now we're going to flip back over to our map one more time, and you'll see that Paul has left Jerusalem, and this is some months later. We don't know exactly how long, some months later, uh, maybe as much as six months later. Peter has left Jerusalem. Peter, by the way, is the head of the Christian church universal. James, the brother of Jesus, is the head of the Christian church in Jerusalem. But Peter's the head of the whole church. He's responsible for everything that's going on. Peter travels from Jerusalem up to Antioch. You see Antioch is on the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Do you see that way up there at the top? And so, um, so Peter travels up there. And his purpose for going up there, he goes on to tell us why. Uh, but while he's there, Paul, by the way, who is the associate pastor at the church in Antioch at this point, he's one of five associate pastors. Barnabas is the senior pastor. Um, Paul, um, when Peter gets there, he says he opposes Peter to his face. Why? Because he was clearly in the wrong. Verse 12. And here's why Peter went up to Antioch in the first place. Verse 12. Before certain men came from James. Remember, James is the head of the Christian church down in where? Jerusalem. Okay. He's down in Jerusalem. He's head of the Christian church down there. And he says, before these men, these inspectors, if you would, had come from James. And then he goes on to say some things. We'll get to it here in a second. What's going on here is that the apostle, uh, or, or is that, that persecution has, has just been, has been ravaging the Christian church in Jerusalem. And the, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, who don't like the Christians, who think there's some sort of a cult, some sort of a sect, some sort of not Jewish thing, um, have been just leveling uh, blow after blow after blow against the Christians. It's been really, really difficult for the Christians in Jerusalem, um, as well as, I believe, at this point in history, a famine has struck that territory. And so uh, to help matters, 
Um, again, these Jewish leaders have, have heard that there's a church up in Antioch where both Jewish people and Gentile people, all of whom are Christians, are worshiping get- together in the same church. And this is a big, giant no-no if you're a Jewish person, that they're sitting down, they're having table fellowship together. And so Peter goes up to check on this. He's for it. He's okay with it. Uh, anyway, I could go into the book of Acts to show you where. But in any case, he's for it. He's okay with it. Um, but uh, some men came from James also to inspect this, to see what's going on here, that these Jewish and Gentile people are sitting together having table fellowship. They're calling themselves Christian. They're not observing, if you would, the Jewish uh, things to do, the Jewish law. And so before these inspectors came, verse 12, certain men came from James. Um, he used He, that is Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. So Peter himself was sitting down having table fellowship with non-Jewish people, with Gentile people which is a big no-no, right, according to, the, according to the law of Moses. So Peter used to do this. But when they, that is the inspectors, arrived, middle of verse 12, he, Peter, began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. So Peter sees the inspectors walking in the room, stands up from the table and steps back and says, I don't know what's going on in here. Mm, I came up here myself to see what's happening, right? So, But Peter, but just two seconds later, he was perfectly fine, sitting down, having dinner with a guy who's got, you know, earrings in his eyebrow and 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 tattooed things and and all these sorts of stuff who doesn't look like your typical jewish you know church going person and he's sitting down they're having table fellowship together they're going to get on their harleys after church they're going to ride down the road for a little while he's totally totally good with all this stuff and but then all of a sudden these inspectors these church folks walk into the building and he's like "Mm, i don't know what's going on in here right and so he says verse 12 um he says because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So what Peter's afraid of is that the inspectors are going to go back home. They're going to tell the Jewish Sanhedrin, hey, the Jewish people are sitting down and having table fellowship with the Gentile people. The folks who look like church are sitting down and they're, they're building relationships and inroads into people who don't look like church people. And, and there's this whole, whole thing going on up there where everybody's just kind of mixing and blending. And, and, and it's beautiful and Christ loves it, but at least that's what they say. And so... Peter knows that by these inspectors going back, giving a bad report, that the Jewish, or the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem are going to catch it all the more worse. And so he steps back from the table. Well, when the head of the Christian church does this, look at what follows. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. They saw the inspectors walk in the room. All the Jewish people knew what was going on, right? They're familiar with the whole church lingo, the church people stuff. They jump up from the table too, and the Gentile people are just sitting there going, what is going on around here today, right? <clears throat> and, so, and so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, the guy who had thrown his arm around Paul and had welcomed Paul into the faith and said, I know he's rough around the edges, but I'll vouch for him. I'll be his spiritual father. I'm the senior pastor of the church in Antioch. I'll make him one of my associate pastors. I'm going to help this guy because I see great potential in him. Even Barnabas, his spiritual daddy, was led astray. Verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter... In front of them all. Now it's interesting here. Um, you know the appropriate thing to do in a moment like this would have been said, "Hey Peter, um, come, come on, we need we need to step outside and have a conversation in the hallway about what's going on." But what Paul saw take place was this church of Jewish people jumped up from the table, Gentile people were going, "What is going on?" And the church just went, 
right down the middle. And Paul sees this take place. And so Paul, rather than take the head of the Christian church outside to tell him what he thinks, he says, this has got to be settled right here today in front of the church family because it involves all of us. And so he says, verse 14, he says, I said to Peter in front of them all, and here's what he says, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force these Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Why are you throwing all that church stuff onto these Gentiles? Why are you making them look a certain way? Why are you making them act a certain way? It's not necessary for salvation. It's not necessary. It's not what maturity is. And then he goes on in the letter to say, because he still hasn't told us what the revelation is yet. He goes on to tell us in the letter, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, what that revelation is. And I think this is the most clear statement in all of the New Testament of what Christian maturity is. And these are the words, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Say, Gordon, I need a little bit more. Help me out there. Can you help me out with that? Sure. Um, I got a picture for you here. Or actually, can we go back before we get to the picture? Can we look at Paul's spiritual autobiography, the, the fourth one, that shows Galatians 2.20? All right, so you see there Paul goes to, to, to Jerusalem a second time, and he goes with this idea of Galatians 2.20 in mind. This is what he's sharing with them. All right, let's go forward and take a look at the first of our other slides. Um, let me give you a picture of what Paul's talking about here. Paul says, you know, in your world, what does it look like to be a good Jew uh, or to be a good Christian, uh, Jewish Christian, whatever, good church people? He said, this is perhaps some of the characteristics we might expect of somebody who's a good Christian. You know, they go to church, they attend, they dress a certain way, certainly don't wear jeans on Sunday morning. (laughs) I put that plug in, didn't even plan that. So anyway, um, so they dress a certain way. Maybe they tithe. They give to the church, right? They volunteer at the church. They're on serving some committee at the church. They volunteer in the community. They look like a good person. And here's what Paul says, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Here's our next slide. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. He says, now, I, I've tried that route. He says over in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Hey, look, I was a Hebrew among Hebrew. I was from the tribe of Benjamin. I was zealous for the law. I was all the church people stuff. All of it. I mean, I was the best. I was, I was the advancing in Judaism about, uh, in church people stuff amongst many other people my own age. I was moving toward maturity, at least as my church people definition held it. I've been there. He said, but I've been crucified now with Christ. And that old person that I was is dead, is gone. And look at what replaced it. Let's take a look at the third of our slides. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, goodness, faithfulness. All of the fruits of the Spirit that we read about earlier over there in Galatians chapter 5. He says, that's what's walked in the place of who I used to be. You see, maturity in the Christian life is moving us beyond an outward appearance and changing us literally at the level of our heart. You say, Gordon, what difference does all this make to me? That's great to know. 
what difference does all this make to me? The point is, as Paul said in the next verse, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 23. Where was it? Galatians chapter 5 and verse 23, right? 24. He said, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. I didn't give them this scripture, but I'm going to read it. Verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. See, in Gordon Griffin's heart resides a terrible, terrible man. A man who would lie, a man who would deceive, a man who would cheat, a man who would do whatever he could to claw and get ahead of others. But when I turn my life over to Christ and I get on my knees on a daily basis, something else takes over that sinful man. And the more I spend time with Christ, the more I pray. See, prayer is not designed to answer your needs. It's not the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is to put Christ, his character, his quality, his personhood, Christ's likeness in you. The purpose of prayer is to transform you, to become, back over to our last slide, like Paul became, crucified with Christ, to become love, joy, peace. Does your marriage need more self-control? Do your children need more patience? See, you don't get to become that person until you get on your knees with God. Spend time allowing the Holy Spirit to enter into, to transform, to wash out, to point out, to change and transform you from the inside out. Friends, the point of the Christian life is not start and stop when we meet Jesus on the road to Damascus, on our road to Damascus. The point and the purpose of the Christian life is to move through this process toward maturity. And then my last insight comes from the last slide on Paul's spiritual autobiography. How long did this process take? Do the math. How long did it take? Can you not read it? Is it too blurry? 17 years. Until Paul came to Jerusalem the second time with this revelation of Galatians 2.20. Maturity is both a process and it's a destination. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you for talking to us today from your word. We thank you for the life of the Apostle Paul who lived the very things, Lord, that you want to see take place in our life. God, we need more of you in us. We need less of us in ourselves. Because, Lord, left to our own devices, left to our own sinful nature, we'll make a mess of things. And we do. And you forgive. And you share mercy and grace. And we're grateful for that. But we want to make less mistakes. We want our children and our wives, our husbands, to be loved better. We want to be more patient at work. We want to have more self-control. We want to be more like you. Lord, that can happen. But only as we yield and submit ourselves to Christ. Lord, this is why prayer is so hard. Because when we pray, you are changing us. Speak to us in these quiet moments, Lord. Show us a picture of who we can be. Of who you want us to be. And may we submit ourselves to to that vision.
We pray this in Christ's name.